are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evercatinos. And as I just mentioned, we are picking up with the second volume. And so we're on page number one, Hypothesis One, uh, which is subtitled that those who abase themselves are held in honor by God. And so over the past months, we've been speaking a great deal in Climacus as well as in Nebuchadnezzar about pride and humility. And in particular, humility uh, as, uh, uh, as it's perfected as drawing us into the very life of Christ. There's something about the very, this is part of the essence of God. And so the more it becomes perfected within us, uh, the, the, the deeper our intimacy with the Lord becomes, that God has manifested himself, revealed himself to us. And if you look on the page before this, it, the first image that we are confronted with is that of extreme humility, uh, followed by the quote from Philippians, uh, that uh, he did not seize for himself equality with God, you know, that uh, he did not... Uh, seek any reputation. I think this is a translation uh, here under the under the picture in in the of the icon in the work. And so again, you know, Christ becomes for us the standard and the model, uh, but also uh, the ultimate goal for us that we are pursuing this not as a virtue abstracted from our relationship with Him and with God. That by uh, embracing it and allowing our minds and our hearts to be formed by it, we are drawn into a deeper and deeper intimacy with the Lord. So again, we're on page one, and we are starting from uh, letter A, St. Palladius. And um, he begins here by speaking of a place uh, called Tabena. And if you remember, we've talked about St. Pacomius as developing the first Cenobitic rules. Uh, for uh, his community, uh, communities of monks and nuns living together, and had actually, before his death in Upper Egypt, had established, uh, I believe it was nine uh, monasteries, and a few, a couple of those were communities of women, and, uh, and this evening, uh, our first little section is going to be about one of these communities, in particular, uh, about uh, one of the nuns who is a model of of this humility, but a particular form of it, a kind of holy fool, you know, one whose reputation within the community was uh, seen as very, she was seen as sort of an idiot, uh, slow within the community, but is gradually revealed as having this great virtue. Uh, by uh, another holy individual who visits. And so again, we are on page number one. In Tabena, there is a woman's monastery, women's monastery with about 400 nuns opposite the men's monastery. Sort of hard to believe it, isn't it? 400 nuns. You don't hear about that too often these days, although there's a few young communities growing that quickly. Uh, In it, there lived a virgin named Isadora, who feigned foolishness for Christ's sake, humbling and abasing herself. All of the sisters detested her so much that they would not even eat with her, but she accepted this joyfully. Uh, So every once in a while within the spiritual tradition, 
we are presented with these images who uh, of uh, people who embrace a life of the holy fool and sort of the, the extreme end, or if you will, or edge of the, the life of humility, the, that they purposely embrace the role of a fool and make themselves detestable in the eyes of, of others. Uh, but seeking in doing so to free themselves uh, from a kind of positive reputation, from any pride. And uh, certainly not everyone is, call is called to this, but I think uh, what these examples provide us with is uh, uh, sort of this kind of perfection from uh, a, a false self-esteem, a self-image that is again, abstracted from our relationship with Christ and our identity in him. And so these images of the holy foal uh, show us the, the kind of freedom that can be uh, attained even within this, within this world. Her virtue then was very beneficial for the entire convent for she fulfilled all her duties, was obedient to everyone as though she were a servant and attended to each nun in her every need and with kindness. For the sisterhood, she was the sponge that cleaned everything. That is, just as a sponge cleans every unclean thing, so she did every lowly task. As the Lord said, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. And if any man among you seemeth to be wise, let him become a fool. So she becomes a kind of confessor of Christ uh, in this form of life that she em embraces, that she bears witness to the truth of these teachings, uh, both from Matthew and from Corinthians here, that she makes herself nothing in the eyes uh, of, the, of the community, uh, but rather a servant. And the image is a very curious one, a sponge that she... Uh, uh, in some ways, certainly in her actions, takes the lowliest of duties, but I think in some ways also her presence purifies and elevates the community, as we will see as the, the story plays itself out, uh, that she, uh, through this life, elevates the community and reveals a great truth to them. All the other nuns had been tonsured and wore monastic veils, while Isidora performed all her tasks in the convent, wearing a rag that she tied around her head. None of the 400 nuns ever saw her eating or taking a morsel of bread. Rather, after gathering the crumbs from the tables and cleaning out the leftover food from the cooking pots, she was content with such. She never wore shoes, never insulted anyone, and never complained, nor did she ever utter an abusive or haughty word. Although she was insulted and beaten, was frequently the object of curses, and was loathed by most of the nuns. So interesting, you know, sometimes religious communities are, are not uh, the, the models of charity that one might expect. There's a real spiritual warfare that goes on there. And oftentimes there are those who are the, the, the victims, if you will, and the focus of the uh, hatred of, of others. It's not an easy thing to live with a saint. And uh, her very presence, uh, even though I'm sure it was rationalized in their minds because you know she seemed to be the fool, uh, I think her holiness was likely revealing something within them that was very difficult to be around. Uh, the, the depth of her poverty of spirit and the depth of her humility. And so then she becomes the focus of their insults and curses. Now, with regard to the most holy Isadora, an angel of the Lord appeared to the holy Petron who was a virtuous and most experienced anchorite and said to him, why do you have such a high opinion of your accomplishments that you are devout and that you remain in this place? Do you wish to see a woman more devout than yourself? Go to the convent of Tabena and there you will find a nun with a crown on her head. 
she's better than you. For though she serves such a large number of nuns and attends to each one of them according to her different needs, nonetheless, she never permits her mind to wander away from God, even though everyone abuses her. But you sit here imagining in your mind what various cities are like, even though you have never seen the world. So a very common kind of story. Uh, we've even heard it about St. Anthony himself, who has it revealed that there's a cobbler uh, in the city who has reached a level of sanctity greater than, than, than he had, or at least a greater attentiveness to God. And here, this holy anchorite uh, is being rebuked uh, for thinking that he has achieved a certain level of sanctity, even though his mind wanders to the things of this world, even things that he's never seen uh, in person, that his mind drifts and he fantasizes, daydreams uh, about other places, places, rather than keeping his mind upon God. And here is this lowly nun, who is even, even though she's sort of being beaten up and insulted, on a daily basis, never allows her mind to turn away from God. And so certainly she's not only a rival of sanctity, but far exceeds him in it. Immediately, uh, uh, Pitrun the Great got up and went to Tabena, where he asked the spiritual teachers to take him to the convent. Since he was respected by the fathers and they trusted him, and since he had grown old in the ascetic life, they took him to the other side of the river and led him to the convent. And having given the customary greetings, he asked to see all of the nuns one by one. So a curious thing, I'm sure that they were wondering what was going on as well, you know, this kind of inspection that was taking place by a strange anchorite. When they had all come, the one who was seeking he was seeking was not there. The great saint said, bring all the sisters before me. They answered, we are all here. Yes, but there's still one missing, the saint insisted, the one whom the angel showed me. Then they said, we have another one in the kitchen, but she's a bit simple. The great saint said, bring her to me, let me see her. However, Isadora would not comply. Evidently understanding the reason she was being summoned, indeed, perhaps God revealed this to her. So they dragged her by force, and as they were bringing her, they told her, the holy Pitrun wants to see you, for he was famous. As soon as they brought her in, the great saint examined her face, as well as the rag that she had tied around her head and over her forehead. And falling at her feet, he said, Holy Mother, bless me. She then fell at his feet and said, Bless me, Father, my master. So we see a little bit of a holy rivalry here, you know, an unwillingness to uh, acknowledge the high estimation that one had for the other. As soon as the others saw all of this, they became upset and said, do not humiliate yourself, Abba, for she is a half-wit. And so the saint said to all of them, you are ignorant. She is better than you and better than I. She is an ama, that is a spiritual mother. And may God make me worthy to be with her on the day of judgment. So it's, you know, the, the, we haven't heard this too, too frequently, certainly not in the first volume. But here the mention of an ama, of a spiritual mother. And uh, perhaps we don't talk often enough about this. We talk about the, the desert fathers, but there were clearly de desert mothers as well. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, group for those who joined late, there were nine of these monasteries founded by St. Pacomius, and a few of them were made up of nuns and a great number of them as we heard 400 in this one community. So no sooner did the nuns hear this than they began to confess each one the various ways in which they had ca caused sorrow to befall the holy woman. One said that she had scoffed at her, another had mocked her for her humble demeanor, 
Yet another admitted, I used to dump the slop from plates on her. Another, I injured her. Another, I struck her. Another, I often whacked her in the nose. And in general, all of them made reference to their various attacks on her. Hearing all of their confessions and having offered prayers for them, together with the Holy Isidora, St. Petrone departed asking this esteemed servant of God to pray for him. So, you know, they all stand revealed and humbled by this humble servant who had endured not only their slights, but as we hear in their confessions, their abuse uh, on all these different levels. After a few days, this precious holy woman, so esteemed by God, secretly fled the convent, since they had all come to regard her highly and to treat her kindly. And she could not accept such honors or the apologies of the sisterhood for their past actions. It was never learned where she went, where she hid away, or where she died. So, the, you know, the revelation of the truth about what was within her heart was not something that she was willing to remain, uh, remain uh, within, that uh, there was a greater danger for her in this uh, certainly to go from being one who was humbled on a daily basis than to be acknowledged and praised, in fact, as an ama, as a spiritual mother of the entire community. And so almost as a way of uh, confirming the depth of her humility is her fleeing uh, and fleeing in such a way that she's never found again or uh, even her uh, place uh, of death uh, was unknown. So she she stands this extraordinary uh, character within the Evergatinos, and uh, and this profound model of holy of a holy fool. Rebecca writes: the thing that people don't understand is that even if she had been a simpleton, and their judgment of her was correct, they still shouldn't have treated her like that. For inasmuch as you did it to the least of these. Absolutely. I mean, I think referring back to the, the beginning of the story that she was described as the sponge of the, the community, certainly, you know, she soaked up all of their uh, abuse. She took it upon herself, but she cleansed them uh, in, in this holy way. Uh, by the revelation of who she was, that they all stand revealed, and in doing so are able then to repent of their abuse. But you're right. I mean, even if she was this, a simpleton, or, you know, that she sh still should have been treated with charity. And I think we, we see it in their confession, that they realize that it wasn't just that they treated her poorly or as a, a simpleton, but they abused her in the worst possible ways, you know, pouring food over her head, whacking her across the nose like a dog. Uh, and so there was a kind of fierce uh, uh, abuse that she endured at their hands. Any other comments? Certainly not an easy one to start with uh, in, the, in the second volume. And uh, it's odd to me that the most holy among us behave this way. Yeah, I think it's because, you know, those who are warring are going to be warred against. And so, you know, there has to be an incredible, it warns us there has to be an incredible, incredible vigilance that, you know, the higher you climb up the ladder, the greater the fall that one can have. And the moment that one takes one's eyes off of Christ and uh, begins to attribute one's own sanctity to the form of life that one has embraced, uh, then you become capable of the gravest of sins uh, because one's mind and heart and conscience becomes darkened by that pride. And we see this over and over again, I think throughout the history of the church, you know, these incredible examples of sanctity and humility of love, but also uh, 
these uh, horrible stories of individuals who then have these this great fall that despite the life that they've chosen, they are capable of great sin, whether it's from, you know, popes to other hierarchs to or other religious. Uh, was she a victim soul? I would say so. I mean, that wasn't so, uh, so, so much a term within the East, but in the West, uh, I, I think so. You know, one who endures this kind of constant uh, cross, uh, you know, that there is a redemptive quality to their life. Uh, so deeply do they participate in the virtues of Christ. And we see that in her life that uh, they all stand revealed, but it's in and through what she endured on their behalf, then that they could be healed, that they could recognize their great sin and uh, repent of it. And uh, so she becomes this source of cleansing, of healing for, for the community. Uh, Walter writes, so Father, there is truly nothing new under the sun. We do the, the very same thing today, and yet we personalize it as if it is something, as if it's something unique. Right. You know, I think there is nothing new under the sun that, uh, you know, it's those closest to Christ who can betray him the most. And, uh, and we see it over and over again. And, and so in some ways we shouldn't turn this into an extraordinary st story. I think it's, uh, uh, you know, a warning for us of what we are capable of doing in our baser or our lesser moments. There but the grace of God go I, that we are capable of doing far worse. And perhaps we, we have in the way that we've viewed others. If we haven't done it in action, we've done it in mind and thought, which our Lord tells us, you know, weighs upon us with equal guilt. Marine writes, they did not see her. That's right. They, they did not see the person. And I think, um, you know, so often this is the source of great sin. You know, the, the loss of the sight of the other. That ego so comes to dominate even religious sensibilities and religious identity that that's all that one sees. And we lose sight of the other and their dignity and uh and we begin to view them only in light of externals rather than the fact that they're made in the image and likeness of god so good great comments uh suzanne writes she reflected christ's attribute of taking upon himself the sins of mankind yes and i think this fits with sort of the victim soul uh, but also, you know, I think uh, what we are all called to to become, you know, these confessors of Christ, that we bear witness to him by the way that we live our life. We bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And so it's our humility, it's our virtue that has the greatest power, uh, I think, to, to bring about change within our world. When it arises first from our heart, from our own conversion. And, uh, you know, I think we have this tendency to externalize things, you know, no matter how we organize things within the church, you know, no matter how many programs we have or how much, you know, money we gather to make it capable for us to do all these things. It all means nothing in comparison to true virtue. And we've heard stories in the first volume about uh, monks whose very uh, enactment of a virtue has the capacity to cast out a demon. If you remember the monk who was slapped across the face and turns the other cheek, uh, it's the action without saying a word, the, the demon is, is cast out. And, uh, and this is where, you know, going back to the fathers, I think is the most important thing for us that uh, so often when we think about renewal of the church or evangelization, we're looking in the wrong place. We should be looking in our own hearts and where we need greater conversion and a spirit of repentance. Uh, it's not going to be outside of ourselves 
and, and the things that we build with our hands. It's a very easy way of approaching things to allow us to externalize uh, you know, things that we see, you know, within the church or troubles within the church or the world. Whereas where we see evil, sin in any form, our first response should be greater conversion of heart. Okay, letter B from St. Gregory the Diologist. Oh, I'm sorry, we have a few more comments. Lee writes, no doubt she forgave all those who abused her, lest they would have to, would have lived separate from God throughout eternity. Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, what we hear so often about the perfect one in humility is to, is the one who forgives even before forgiveness is sought. And uh, the way she lived her life, I think, sort of manifest this, that she wasn't one who held grudges, that she freely embraced it and without uh, holding any of them in contempt or with any anger. Sharon writes, how is it that she feigned foolishness? Was she testing them? No, I don't think it was meant to test them. I think the, the you know, the aspect of humility is truthful living and seeking to live in the truth and to set aside all self-esteem outside of Christ. And so it's not to put them to the test. I think it was to put herself, if you will, to the test, to purify her own heart. Uh, did the early church marine rites run to be uh martyred is yeah, that martyred. yeah the yeah I think, their death yeah i think it, you know to be a christian in the early church was to face that reality and again this isn't something that we often think about although we should in our days because in certain parts of the world that is the reality that to be a christian is to be near death uh most of the time or to suffer martyrdom and um, and I think, again, that's a, a good thing to bring up when we are reading the fathers. You know, why was this drive into the desert, desert so powerful within the heart? You know, was it simply this, you know, and again, in a kind of abstract or narcissistic way, you know, to flee the world or to turn inward? Or was it this, you know, understanding that, uh, stepping out of the age of martyrdom had this impact upon the life of the church in the sense of leading to a lukewarmness, a kind of mediocrity, uh, slipping away or slouching away from the heart of the gospel and uh, its, its demand, you know, the great demands of love. And I, I think it's only an understanding in that way that we can understand this movement into the desert, this desire to give one's heart over completely to God, to see it as a kind of white martyrdom, a dying to the self uh, since uh, the faith had become accepted in the culture. Anthony writes, if she were foolish, perhaps she was like Brother Juniper, companion of St. Francis, very plain, kind and simple, perhaps even a little touched, but that weakness became a strength, a strength by grace. Right, that's a good example comparison, I think. Uh, and, you know, it's hidden uh, because I think embraced so fully. You know, it's, I don't think we see it as an act uh, so much as this complete embodiment of, of humility. And uh, so, I, again, this is where I think we move away from the idea of her testing others or the community uh, or, you know, of just putting on an act of being a fool. I think it's embracing that uh, in a unique way as a call from God uh, uh, to live this perfect humility. Suzanne writes, the age of the desert corresponds to the age of heresy post-persecution. It's a communal reparation. You know, I think one could speak of it in such a way, and there's something enduring about it uh, that stands for the life of the church uh, forever. And I think it sets the spirituality 
for us. And I think that we've sort of lost sight of this. Uh, I think in the early stages of the church, there was this kind of homogeneity in uh, the anthropology, psychology, and spirituality of the church, what it is to live in Christ. And we find that in the writings of the fathers, uh, really uh, up until the, the time of the uh, Reformation. And then we've talked about this before, after the Reformation, you find these various schools of spirituality developing, I think as a way of dealing with the reality of the Reformation. You find this kind of holy genius emerging and yet, and these individuals are still rooted in uh, this spiritual tradition. But as you distance yourself from the charismatic figures, you can also dis uh, you distance yourself or can distance yourself from what fed and nourished their spirituality. And I think part of the, the call back into this resourcement, go back to the source of scripture, to the fathers, is really you know, what we need to do because uh, we've lost sight, even though we have all these extraordinary character saints, you know, what is it that transformed them? What is it that drove them? And, uh, and to take hold of that in our life. Okay. So letter B from St. Gregory the Dialogist. St. Equitius, who was made worthy to receive many spiritual gifts from God and who by his teaching and preaching led many souls to the Lord in accordance with the commandment given, wore such extremely shabby clothes that those who exchanged the monastic kiss in greeting him were often repulsed. When he had occasion to go somewhere, it was his custom to ride the worst horse that the monastery had. He would use a halter instead of a bridle and bit and a sheepskin instead of a saddle. He always took with him a leather saddlebag with holy books and wherever he went, he would uncap the spring of holy writ and water the soil of spiritual thoughts. So here was you know, a holy humble soul uh, who in all these aspects of his life uh, took, you know, the lesser uh, of things upon himself. And what it allowed him to do, I think, was to penetrate the depths of the scriptures in such a way that we were told then wherever he went, uh, he was able to offer, uh, as it says here, uncap the spring of holy uh, writ and the water, the soil, spiritual thoughts, that he was able to nourish the faithful uh, out of this deep well uh, of humility uh, that had formed in his heart. Thereupon, the inspector sent his assess, I'm sorry, I skipped a paragraph there. Now his reputation spread as far as Rome. Out of envy, various people said many bad things about him to the patriarch. Uh, so much did they accuse him that finally they persuaded the patriarch to send his inspector general, Jolian, to summon the saint before him. The inspector went immediately to Equitius's monastery, where he found the more eminent monastics having a discussion. He asked them where he would find the abbot, and they answered that he was in the hollow just below, where he was cutting weeds. So it's so, so often the case, uh, and you know, jealousy of individuals can emerge within the spiritual life over sanctity or reputations of sanctity. And that jealousy leads to envy, you know, that there becomes then this des just desire to destroy it uh, or diminish it in some way. And that envy, as we've often talked about, can be driven by a malevolent spirit. It can really be a malicious spirit. And uh, this is what we see uh, driving the individuals uh, initiating this attack. Thereupon, the inspector sent his assistant, a pompous and arrogant fellow, to call the saint. The assistant, approaching the mowers, asked them to tell him who Equitius was. However, the moment that he was informed by them who the saint was, he began to tremble 
and was in such agony that he could hardly walk. Approaching the saint, he fell at his feet and told him that his master was at the monastery. So it's interesting, you know, the individual who's filled with arrogance and who's pompous comes into the presence of sanctity and of this perfect humility. And it's almost like that demon who's cast out by the perfect charity of the monk in the first volume, that here he uh, collapses uh, and cannot hold himself upright in the presence of, of, of the saint. Without losing any time, the man of God put on his outer cloak, put his scythe over his shoulder and returned to the monastery. Jolian, learning from his assistant that this was Equitus, felt revulsion and had serious misgivings about speaking with him. When he nonetheless approached him, Jolian was overcome by an indescribable fear and only with difficulty, trembling, could he tell him why he had come. Humbled in this way, Jolian knelt before the saint and asked him to bless him. The saint, having lifted him up, blessed him and asked that they go immediately to the patriarch. For Equitius said, if we do not obey today, tomorrow it will be impossible. But Julian answered him, Father, I'm exhausted from the journey and I cannot go back today. Obliged by the inspector, they remained that night together at the monastery. The next day, just as day dawned, one of the patriarch's assistants came to Julian and ordered him not to dare to remove the servant of God from his monastery. Inquiring from the assistant about the reason for this reversal, he answered that the previous night the patriarch had been terrified by divine vision since he had dared to send a man to summon and bring before him the servant of God, Equitius. Immediately then, Julian arose and went to tell Equitius, our father, the patriarch, bids that you need not expend the effort to go to see him. Whereupon Equitius, very saddened, said to him, Did I not tell you yesterday that if we did not leave immediately, we would not be able to fulfill the order afterwards? Having thus accommodated Julian at the monastery with love, the saint also gave him a small gratuity for his efforts, even though Julian did not want to accept it and wishing him a good trip, blessed him. Learn then, Peter, Peter is the one that Gregory is addressing, uh, how honored are those who prefer in the present life to be loathed by others, namely, they are numbered among the citizens of the heavenly homeland. On the contrary, those who in their arrogance appear to the righteous before men and are puffed up in their vanity, such are found far from the eyes of God. For this reason, Christ censures them and says, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, and so on. It's an extraordinary story. There are little layers here for us. You know, this part of it in particular, you know, certainly where neither of the men, Julian or his assistant, uh could approach the saint that his humility his living so deeply and fully in the truth reveals the truth about themselves and they are both undone by it and tremble by it to the point that julian is unable to travel to make the trip and uh, equitius wants them to fulfill the obedience to the patriarch and to even go a step further and allow himself to be humbled more by being compelled to make this trip to the patriarch. And so he warns Julian the night before, you know, if, if you put this off because you're too tired, I'm going to miss, it's almost as if he's saying, I'm going to miss this further opportunity to act in obedience and to be humbled, to be dragged before the patriarch and scrutinized. And it proves true that uh, because they delay, the patriarch has this vision 
that that tells him of this uh, of the sanctity of this individual and so he calls it off and it's a curious thing that Equitius even gives uh, Julian a tip for all of his trouble that he rewards him for coming to fulfill the patriarch's demand even though he's unable to do so and uh and so in a sense he humbles himself again before this inspector uh that he pays him for having come to, to scrutinize him and uh to hold him up to the gaze of others and so it's again you know the multiple layers here gives us a lot to to reflect upon we don't often again think of of life, of humility, uh, humility is having this particular kind of value. We can't imagine this. I think we, again, we know it more from its opposite. And so confronted by a story like this, it almost seems fantastic to hear it, uh, you know, as if it is, you know, a kind of myth, just a, a story. And yet what we are being exposed to is the power of this virtue that had been brought up to us at the end of the last volume. That, you know, this isn't just the uh, perfection of a natural virtue, that this is part of the nature, a quality of God himself that is revealed to us in Christ. And so when a person is perfected in this virtue by the grace of God, we find them even uh, others responding to them in the way that they re respond to an angelic figure. These men can, you know, you know, drop down uh, uh, almost uh, like the uh, was it the soldiers at the tomb of Christ, you know, in the presence of of the holy. They are humbled physically. Uh, the, uh, they are brought to their knees, if you will. And so in both these first two stories tonight, we are presented with that kind of image. You know, uh, in the first one, they're spiritually humbled. In the second, they're both spiritually and physically humbled, brought to their, their knees uh, in the face of the, the sanctity of this individual uh let's see okay any comments on this story all right it's a lot to take in as slow as we read sometimes i think you, we almost have to take a breath after each of, of these stories, uh, because it sort of knocks the wind out of you a little bit. And the, these these two did. Uh, from the life of St. Gregory, the wonder worker. Once all of the inhabitants in and around the city of Kamana set off and went to meet Gregory, the wonder worker. They requested that he go to visit their city and there to strengthen the church by ordaining a priest for them. St. Gregory, of course, agreed and went to them. The city leaders turned for candidates to those whom they considered superior in education and lineage and thus social worth. So the votes for candidates were distributed among many nominees, since one preferred this one and another yet someone else. St. Gregory, however, waited for some counsel from God on the matter. And just as Samuel, as it is related in Holy Scripture, when he was to anoint the king for the Jews, was not impressed by the beauty or physical stature, but sought after royalty of soul, even if it was to be found in a man of lowly status. And so it was with the saint. Looking carefully at the attributes of each one of those who had been put forth as a candidate, he looked for one thing only. If one of those nominated, even before being ordained a priest, had taken into his soul the grace of the priesthood through the devout nature of his life and his virtuous conduct, 
So, you know, as we read through this, you know, and we're, um, we're presented with all these saints, it's a curious thing. And in, in, the, in the West, a lot of these have fallen out of the calendar. And on the Eastern calendar, uh, these come up every single day and, and are recognized uh whether it's you know a daily liturgy or a sunday liturgy in some form or another and so we've lost sight of acknowledging some of the most extraordinary figures in the, the ascetic life and i think that's again something that the east offers us and that sorely needs to be regained that we've turned away in a sense uh from those saints who lived long ago but you know what does that mean you know to us whether or not they lived in the early you know in the third or fourth century if they are the model of virtue you know we, they shouldn't be set off of the calendar because somehow they you know no longer speak to the the you know the more modern generation or the more contemporary generation. I mean, these are the ones who embody so profoundly for us the, these virtues. And so if a story needed to be heard about uh, seminary, seminary, who's drawn into seminary and priesthood, it's this story from St. Gregory. You know, what are you looking for when a man is being called to the priesthood? You know, is it the most educated individual or one who comes from royalty has you know a certain lineage and you know Gregory you know he's not he's not going to be fooled by it and so he prays for it and he looks for a sign and when he goes there you know he's looking for one thing only one who already embodies it prior to ordination who is sought to live the priestly life, or more specifically, the virtue that is necessary for the, the priest to have within his mind and his heart. These are the ones that would be chosen then as candidates. And, uh, you know, we can follow a very worldly approach uh, to priestly training as well. You know, one that can be overly academic or focus again too much on human formation but on the kind of formation that again is uh set up by worldly parameters you know of, of what a successful uh individual would look like and uh you know nowhere do we find that certainly in gregory he's not out there looking for a great administrator or you know so, someone who's going even to be a great teacher you know because of his education but looking for the holy soul and in this he emulates samuel who does the same thing and and waiting until he comes across david the least of the brothers and you know the i forget the name of the first brother that appears you know and you know, he thinks to himself, of course, you know, this one has the stature and the look to, of a king about him. And all the brothers of David are rejected until this lowly, you know, shepherd boy comes. He's, he's the one because God searches the heart. He doesn't look at external appearances. Okay. Now, when the leaders presented with uh laudation laudations those whom they had nominated to be priests saint gregory ordered them to look as well into the lives lives of the humblest citizens of the city since he said it might be possible to find among these citizens someone who was worthier in richness of soul than those whom they considered important one of the leaders in attendance interpreted St. Gregory the Great's judgment to be defiant and an affront to their decision. That is, he assumed that the saint had chosen to accept no one from among those whom they had selected for their education, their rank, their status in life, but to give preference for the grace of the priesthood to other uneducated and brutish people. And scoffing at the saint, he added, 
If that is what you order, then let us ignore those whom the entire city has nominated and raise to the rank of the priesthood someone brute, uh, some brute from the rabble. It is time then to call Alexander the coal peddler to the priesthood. And if you think it is good, let us vote unanimously for him so that the whole city can be in concord with us. <laughs> what a snotty individual, you know, you know, he, he sort of picks up from Gregory. All right, you're just going to pick somebody that, you know, other than what we have selected and set aside, you know, our choices. And so he picks out prophetically from all the brutish individuals in among the rabble of the city, the very one who would make the, the, the best priest so it's curious you know that in despite his uh being so ever prideful that you know prophetically he just put, he puts his finger on the very one such were the things that he said casting aspersions on the saint with his sarcastic proposal on account of the saint's aforementioned ostensibly witness witless words there took birth in the mind of the saint however the idea that from all that was said Perhaps the name of Alexander was mentioned among the candidates for the priesthood by divine inspiration. And who, he asked those in attendance, is this Alexander that you should now bring him up? Thereupon, one of those present, laughing with derision, brought in their midst Alexander, who was wearing a sorry looking, wearing sorry looking rags that did not even cover his whole body. His appearance gave evidence of his profession. His hands and his face, as well as the remainder of his body, which the rags did not cover, were covered with grime. The sight of one such as Alexander standing among them gave all the others an occasion to laugh. Through the clairvoyant eyes of St. Gregory, however, what was happening created surprise and amazement in his soul. A uh, couple comments here, and then we'll go back to the text. Uh, Sharon writes, I so agree the West sometimes pays less attention to the saints than I would like, but in an effort to provide services that people, families can actually attend, they've cut, they have to cut somewhere. Yeah, you know, St. Saint, John Paul the Great picked up on that. And he said, this is not the time to lower our standards. He said, this is the time to become to scrutinize in, in an even greater way. And, uh, you know, this was before this, the scandals emerged within the life of the church. Um, we would do better with one holy priest than, a, you know, a whole legion of those who are far from it. I think the West has emphasized the temporal, Anthony Wright, or Adam writes, I think the West has emphasized the temporal cycle over the sanctoral cycle in recent years. But if the office of readings and the martyrology could become more prevalent in the life of the church, that would go some way to helping. I agree. Uh, to, you know, immerse ourselves in the reading of the lives of the saints. And, you know, again, this has been put forward as a path to sanctity over and over again sacred scripture the life lives of the saints if you immerse yourself in those two things you'll find your path forward uh anthony writes i was thinking this sounded like the charcoal saint didn't alexander also see our lady uh, blackernay promising to protect the city from besieging barbarians you know that's a good question i do not know i'll have to, i'll have to look that up that might be a story from his life that i I haven't had the good fortune to read. Uh, the West tends to be very Thomistic, I believe. That's true. I mean, there is, it's often the critique, despite the fact that Thomas was a very holy individual, uh, might be more Thomist, uh, that uh, a move towards kind of intellectualism in regards to the faith and and talking about the faith. And, um, you know, it, I there's always a bit of an exaggeration in such things, uh, but we have a tendency to do that. I think more, not because of anything particularly Thomistic, but more of what goes on within our own hearts 
uh, in, in terms of our defenses, psychological and spiritual, that we rationalize things uh, to, in order to domesticate the gospel and to make it more palatable and to avoid uh, the greater demands of love or humility. And uh, I think what's so powerful about these readings is that they pierce through that. I mean, they again present us with the gospel in such an unvarnished fashion that it does sort of take your breath away when you read one of these stories. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think it pushes us to, you know, to deal with these things in a more personal way. Father, is it too late to ask a question about one of your Facebook posts? <laughs> sure, go, go ahead. Or you could type it up, or if you just want to take yourself off mute. Okay, here it is. Uh, you put up a quote from St. Simeon, for unless a person has been trained in strict vigilance, so that when attacked by a flood of useless thoughts, he tests and sifts them all, he is readily seduced by many unseen ways by the devil. Presuming there is no human being available to train and guide you in learning to discipline your thoughts, how do you acquire this skill? Is there a book you can re recommend that gives practical instruction on how to purify the thoughts? Uh, yes, the Evergatinos, uh, four, four books, uh, and all of the fathers, the, the Philokalia, uh, the, you know, St. John Climacus that we're reading right now. I mean, all of them speak of this. You know, there we are live in a privileged age in that sense, where we might lack personal guides, we can sit at the feet of these great spiritual elders. Uh, like no other generation. I mean, we have the Syriac writers available to us now too. Isaac the Syrian is never before. And so we have an abundance of spiritual teachers. I think part of it is interiorizing it and internalizing it and doing what we've been told by some of these modern elders that not to turn a page until we've in internalized it. And uh, that's going to slow us down even more, but so be it if it trans transforms the heart. Uh, see, thereupon, let's, we'll just finish up this story. Thereupon, uh, no, I did that paragraph already, sorry. This man, so poor and so unkempt in body, was self-composed and seemed to be rejoicing at all that which to his ignorant detractors was laughable. And it was so, he was not reduced to this kind of life by poverty, but was a philosopher as his subsequent life story proved since he became a martyr and came to, I'm sorry, since he became a martyr and came to the end of his earthly sojourn by fire. He sought to live without ostentation, whereas he once more whereas he was more noble than others in their feigned importance. And since he would not exchange anything for the higher and true life, which he desired, he tried in every way to avoid the attention of men, so as to attain his aim of virtue. So he, uh, in many ways, is like the first two characters that we, we looked at, that here uh, he you know, took care of the coal for the town, was grimy, and again, seemed in their eyes a laughable prospect for the priesthood, and yet had a keen, not only a keen mind because of his philosophical training, but rather the desire for higher things within his heart, that, you know, what he desired was sanctity. And uh, this, in the end, would not only lead him uh, to the priesthood, but as we're told here, uh, to, to martyrdom. You know, that his desire was for he who is truth, uh, not simply to know the truth in the mind. So, my friends, that brings us, believe it or not, to 8.30. Uh, the hours seem to go by so quickly. Uh, but uh, again, a very powerful way to start out the first volume. Uh, I feel, as I've mentioned, a little bit breathless 
prepare tonight after reading both of them. And maybe that's a good indicator uh, of the need to go back and, and read them again more slowly. But uh, great way to start. As I mentioned, though, we're going to get into some very some of the particulars of the spiritual life as we move on of the ascetical life. And so all of this is laying a great foundation for us upon which to build. Okay, so when we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. Thanks be to God.